Yeah, I I I have PTSD from Puppy Linux and regular expressions. So I try to I try to avoid regular expressions if at all possible. Like if there's any other way to accomplish something, I'm going to accomplish it the other way. All right, Jeff, we are going to talk about something that I know makes both of us very, very happy. Oh, yes, it does. The Unix philosophy. Da -da. So let's let's start off right from the gate, um, right out of the gate and say that one of the things that I love about the Unix philosophy is that it is not a formal design philosophy. It is a pragmatic design based on real world experience of trying to get things done. Mm -hmm. um, it, to make the analogy of uh, Eric Raymond's Cathedral in the Bazaar, this was from the Bazaar. This was from in the trenches trying to figure out what is the best way for us to do things and to have things work together. This was not an ivory tower design where people sat back and pontificated on what would be the best way for different pieces to, to operate together. This was people who needed to get a job done and through trying to do that multiple ways came to a set of guidelines, philosophies, whatever you want to call them, that we now kind of umbrella blanket them with the Unix philosophy. So a history lesson in anyone can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I believe Ken Thompson was the originator. But since then, other people have kind of dovetailed on and tried to put into words what he explained, say it in other ways, it's more eloquent, uh, add on additional pieces. The most common that everyone knows about is the do one thing and do it well. Yes. That's the that's the big one. I usually cite that yeah. to people. If that's all the room you have, then that's a good place to stop, I guess, but that leaves a lot to be desired. But, yeah, I think it's unfortunate because there's so many other things that go along with that. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the the, 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 the second big one is programs working together. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not necessarily required with the first, but when you put the first and the second together, you now have even more capabilities. Right. The, the third big one that always comes up is that the output of one program should be able to be the input of another program. Because back in the day, everything was, of course, text stream. Right, yes. So you could do mm -hmm. that. In today's modern world, that's a little different. I agree. Somewhat, because there's a somewhat lot of different somewhat yeah because there's a lot of programs that don't really give an output that is an input for something else mm -hmm. because our programs have become so complex and they've also become very specific in what they're trying to do mm -hmm. in in many ways i think that actually programming languages have sort of adopted the unix philosophy more than the os because mm. if you think about it if you think about a programming language take c++ okay yeah you have individual classes which do one thing mm -hmm. and they do it well. And when you take those classes and you bolt them together so that the input or output of one becomes the input of another, you create a giant program that could do amazing things. Okay. All right. I can see that. So like our programming methodologies follows this principle. You're not going to want to have one class which does 15,000 different things. That's, that's called an anti-pattern. 
If we're, for those keeping it's called score. JavaScript. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, oh, there went there went three of our listeners yeah. right there. Gosh. Yeah, I'll, I'll, three of them, <laughs> and and we're gonna get tons of angry emails of people saying, "Excuse me, JavaScript is a beautiful language." I'd be happy to get an angry email. Just emails, which general. is definitely that is definitely a phrase I never thought I would ever say. <laughs> However, <laughs> ret returning back to the point, not to go on a tangent or anything. We would never do such a thing. Yeah, not not a, not not a, not one of those tangents about how I think <laughs> JavaScript is actually an alien plot to destroy the planet. But anyway, um, you heard it here first. So Jeff, yeah. So Jeff, tell me, uh, what are your kind of initial thoughts, feelings about the Unix philosophy in 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 general or in specific? Well, okay. Um, I use tools on the command line every single day in my job. I, I spend probably sixty percent of my time on the command line. Uh, I'm blessed in that way. And I'm constantly chaining things together and I'm constantly using a tool that did this one thing and putting it, its output goes into the next thing, it's the input and, you know, creating these filters and arriving at a result. And I've gotten to the point where it's just, it's automatic. You know, of course this will work because of this, I know how this tool works and I know that it's built this way and I don't have to think about it. When you run across those tools that don't do that, all of a sudden I stop and I just get irrationally angry. Like, who did it this way? Why did they not just do that, you know? And I, at this point, it's so ingrained in me that this is, of course, the way you do things that it just, that's naturally the way I approach problem solving. You know, that's the way I, I tend to write my automation code that way. I tend to write, I don't really do any hardcore programming these days. I, I would like more time to do it, but I'm not investing in it. But when I do spend my time programming, I just kind of naturally program that way uh, without even thinking about it because it's so built in. It's immediately obvious that, of course, things are going to succeed when you write according to this Unix philosophy, or you try and cue closely to what it's asking you to do. And there are times when you need to go outside those bounds. There are times when you end up with a mega class that really, okay, this kind of got out of hand, I need to break this down. But by and large, sticking close to the philosophy, I have a lot more success. And that's that's been borne out over the last 15 or 20 years. So it's difficult for me to think about a different approach, frankly. It's difficult for me to think about another paradigm. Maybe that's one of the reasons that I find uh, Linux and Unix so useful is just because I'm, I'm in alignment with how the system tends to do things or how the uh, the tools on the system tend to allow me to do things. It's, it's, it's a good alignment. And I encourage anybody who's watching me, because, you know, sometimes it happens where you're having to fix something and you've got someone watching and I'm just in here typing away on the command line and I've got this, I can kind of see out of the corner of my eye, I'm watching this guy like, you can see his, he kind of leans into the screen a little bit more. He's kind of like, what is, what is he, what is that? What the <laughs> heck did he just do? I think... I think I've actually done that over your shoulder one or time. You might have. One, one you know, or two times. You might have. Uh, it, it's, and I would love to stop. Sometimes I can't. I'd like to stop. Well, here's what I did. I just, I chained this. I did that. I did this. And the end result is I end up with that value over there. And that's what we were actually looking for. So that's, that's a great way to do it. And when I'm trying right. to show somebody else, I try and explain, this isn't the only way to do it. It's the way I know how to do it that I think is the most efficient. But I don't want to presume that I know the right way to do everything either. Is there, there are, you know, we've talked about system D off and on over the years and how I feel like it's not very Unix philosophy at times because it kind of shoved a lot of things together. On some level it is, but on other things it's not. It shoved a lot of pieces together that I think didn't belong in that whole. I liked them to be separate. Like I liked my, I liked the problem my with system timekeeper. D, Go ahead. Yeah, the problem with system D is that you have both system D, the binary, and system D, the package. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. And a lot of people are like, oh, well, everything is done by system D. Well, 
Yeah, in a way, because there's a lot of separate individual binaries that are all packed together as the system D bundle. Right. It just gets termed system D, but there's actually very much still a lot of unique binaries in there that are doing their own thing when they're called. Yes. It's not one giant binary. And it, it's interesting that that is considered a problem with system D, but then it's not considered a problem for the GNU core utils package, which contains a ton of binaries. Yes. Nobody goes, oh, that core utils package is trying to do everything. No, nobody makes that claim because it's obviously nonsense. So th I think this is one of the areas where the dislike of Lenart just brought on people making initial assumptions and not actually checking that, that all those assumptions maybe, were correct. Maybe. So, but I do want to challenge you on one point here. Okay. I will say that, yes, I think system D, the package is composed of many different binaries that are all doing their things, but they're built these days. Each package expects, so this thing over here has a time component. And so it's going to go over and ask the system D time D to do its thing. And the way you ask system D time to do its thing is different than if you'd gone to crony D or NTPD or, or whatever, right. not NGT, um, Anacron or whatever. And it changed the interface. So yes, you could conceivably write another something to which the system D component that reaches out to system D time D, you could, something else could replace it, but they have changed mm -hmm. that interface. So yes, independent tools, but it's not, it's leave something out to just say, oh, it's a bunch of independent tools. Well, so there's, that's, there, there's multi layers there. For one, you did have the fact that there were a lot of tools which were no longer being developed by anyone. That's true. But were still like fundamentally useful tools that the system D team was like, oh, look, that tool's not being developed. Let's just bring that over here. And then once it was in the corral, then it was, oh, well, we can tweak this here and tweak this here. And now these two work together better. So that absolutely happened. And I personally think there was some shenanigans with uh, not actually claiming the API as uh, stable and continuing to keep the API unstable. Right. So that I'm doing massive air quotes for everyone who's listening. So that if someone was trying to write pieces to as alternatives, well, you know, if they happen to change something which broke all that work that somebody did, oh, well, we're sorry. It Remember, was it was, it was exactly unstable interface. It's unstable. You shouldn't have invested in that. Yeah, it's unstable, but also stable enough to get shipped in rel. So, mm -hmm. huh? How does, how does that work? But anyway, that's that's going that's off on shenaniganery on side. That is yeah. a word, by the way. I had someone contest that that was not a word. Shenaniganery absolutely is a word, and I'll go to my grave oh. claiming that. Okay. So, whatever you send, say, send me an email if you think I'm wrong, and I'll tell you that you're wrong. So, that's just the way it's going to be. Anyway. That's not related to the Unix philosophy at all. Um, and I, I no. didn't want to drag it towards the system D tangent, but it seemed like the most within reach example um, that immediately came to mind. Maybe it's not the best example. Well, I, I know you I know you had to because yeah. of your your deep loathing hatred for system D. So it's it's understand. I understand you. I, I'm, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it pass. Yes, thank you for that. Oh, you're so gracious. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So gracious. Let's let's drag this back to somewhere useful, shall we? Sounds like a good idea. So. Eric Raymond, who I believe you met at Self. Mm -hmm. If not, you're a horrible person because he was there and you were there, so you should have met him. Mm -hmm. um, he came up with 17 rules in the Art of Unix Programming, which came out in the early 2000s. So I figured we'd go over those as well. For those who don't know Eric Raymond, he is an open source advocate. 
think he was the original guy who wrote uh, libgif um, so that we could have gif support, which is clearly one of the most important things that are needed, gifs. Anyone who knows me and talks to me on Matrix or Telegram knows I love my gifs. Mm -hmm. He really does. I use them all the time. Uh, to a fault sometimes. Uh, so anyway, one of the, the, the rules that he had, one of them was uh, build modular programs, which again, that's kind of the full Unix philosophy of, mm -hmm. you know, build small things. One of my favorite points, write readable programs. This is something that I have major contentions with other people that I know who are devs who they prefer to write clever programs, which, yeah, at the end of the day, they may accomplish exactly what you want, but they are so illegible that anyone else looking at it is just going to spend their time scratching their head. It makes me wonder if they're actually paying by the character when they write their programs. D does it really matter that you got this in 80 characters instead of 140? Like, does that really make a difference? Because it's all getting compiled at the end of the day. Yeah, so funny story there. Um, this has happened more than once, where I had, as a younger man, written some clever code and then come back later and started looking at forgetting that I had written this code. What the hmm. was this guy doing? What? I, this is illegible. Who did this? Go look at the commit logs. I did this. Oh, God. Quickly fix this. Let's do this better, you know? I think uh, there was a, a... I can do it this way, and it looks really neat and elegant, and I get to use this neat tool or use this new programming language uh, functionality. I, I get to use a Lambda for this. Let's do that. You know, let's use Lambda. That's new and cool. You know, or the three-line regular expression of Doom just because you can, as opposed to breaking it out into a couple distinct if statements that would be far more readable. Mm -hmm. One massive regular expression because we can do that. And look how much I know about regular expressions that I can do this. Yay. Yeah, I, I I have PTSD from puppy Linux and regular expressions. So I try to I try to avoid regular expressions if at all possible. Like if there's any other way to accomplish something, I'm gonna accomplish it the other way. There's been some really great um some libraries I know that Ruby has, and I'm sure that actually all the languages do, but you don't have to write regular expressions anymore. You can just create kind of linearly like create uh this object and it does something else. And the next character should be this and that. And so you're just creating these chained um, function calls together to create a quote unquote regular expression. Only it's readable in, in English. It's really great. Right. The, the problem with uh, Puppy Linux is that all of the stuff is bash. Yeah. So there's a, there's the, I keep running kind of limited there. Yeah. And they're, they're very adamant to not including other languages for the actual base functioning of the system which actually i agree with i do too because that makes it very very approachable that was one of the reasons i could get involved mm -hmm. back in when i started getting involved was because it was bash i could actually look at it and go oh this is all the crazy stuff that it's doing mm -hmm. i get it now. now sometimes you have to bend over backwards because it is bash you need to do something funny or, or yeah i don't have a good way to do this so i'm just going to kind of compute this and stick it in a file and then reread it back in again because i don't have a good way to do it or but by and large bash mostly does what you need as long as you don't need you know floating point or or objects or anything like that as long as you don't need any of those things bash is great yeah you can you can accomplish amazing things with bash you really can but uh you know there's there's some limitations there yeah as a younger person i was really about the trim linux system too so i was like i don't want pearl in my system i don't no pearl tools i don't need pearl i actually was very adamant against uh, ubuntu in the early days because you had to have both Perl and Python because various system tools were using it. I'm like, no, I don't want that. That's not the right way to do it. So get those off my system. Nowadays, I don't care anymore. 
is that more of an issue of things not being compiled or um i don't know i because I, I think it's fine to pick pearl to do something versus c honestly because sometimes you just want to mock something up you just want to get quick. there's no reason to use pearl over c look come on there are some really fantastic things that pearl does i can't name any of them off the top of my head but i'm sure there yes, are some like making like making code that no one can read you can, pearl does that better than any other language you can make readable pearl I know you can. I, I don't know how, but I know it can be done. <laughs> exactly. No one knows how. It is the giant mystery of the 21st century. How can you write an entire Perl program that is legible and understandable? So maybe Perl is the no, don't do it this way language that we all learned. This is the hot plate that you learned. If I touch that, it's hot. If I program this Oh, way, no, I never learned Perl. Oh, okay. I was, I was steered clear away from Perl by some wise yeah. people whoever in that my was past, or those like, people. don't don't do it don't do it man just stay away well okay at various times in, in my career i haven't had a choice you know you run into the pearl hacker mm -hmm. and uh, no matter what you're stuck writing it or you're stuck reading it at least that's happened a couple different jobs and there now you just back up and run into them again and you just keep running into them <laughs> until they they stop writing pearl <laughs> Running into them with something sharp, is, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> or yeah, blunt. like a car. Yeah, yeah. that'll that'll work too. Wow, this turns on the, on the readable programs front, though. To uh, to get off the murder. Um, <laughs> yes, please off the murder. I have been I have been picked on relentlessly because I write so simple that I, I've actually had someone say like, "Hey, who wrote this? Were they like a teenager?" And I'm like, um. No, that that was me. I, that I, was I, deliberate. I that. But but I'm glad that it was so easy to understand that you thought a teenager wrote it. I'm going to take that as a compliment, even if it's not. Well, that's kind of, uh, I, I really admire Python for this. The Zen of Python, right near the top. It, the simple is better than complex. Readable is better than... Um, Hence, white spaces as formatting. Oh, come on. Don't go there. I thought I was just thinking, well, when you get used to it, it's okay. It's I'm used to it by now. So for me, it's actually quite readable. It's uh, it's it makes perfect sense, especially man coming from C and C plus plus. That 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 makes no sense. No, I don't. I don't. What's C going is, on here? C is my mother tongue. Okay, I, I I started out in that. That sounds crazy, but it's true. And so I understand that. And I was it took me a while to get used to the idea, but then I I turned on a setting in my editor which put little indentation lines, and all of a sudden everything lined up, and it was no longer a problem. So. I just go on with that. What really I have a problem with is if I'm writing code and then I copy it into like the Python REPL and it doesn't work right. That's when I really get annoyed and I'm like, well, who thought this was a good idea? But in general, Python code, they, they try and teach people right at the top. It's okay to be a little more verbose if it makes it more readable or understandable. That's preferable. And there's lots of neat things you can do in Python much like you could do in Perl that you're like, what the heck is this actually doing? Like nested list comprehension kind of things. Yes, technically you can do that, and you can make a 140-character program that does what somebody else would take 90 lines to do. But is that really the best way to do it? Probably not. So I, I admire them for taking that stance and putting it out there very early on. That this is mm -hmm. a better way to do things. I wish maybe someone had done that to the Perl community early on. But uh, Perl's very old, though. Speaking of a better way to do things, another one of Eric's suggestions is separate mechanisms from policy. Oh yes, and that's a good I'm gonna one. Actually, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to read it directly off of of wiki. 
um, for those that don't quite understand the way he meant that. And it's, the separation of mechanism and policy is a design principle in computer science. It states that the mechanism, those parts of the system implementation that control the authorization of, of operations and allocation of resources, should not dictate the policies according to which decisions are made about which operations to authorize and which or resources to allocate. That would solve so many issues in modern systems yeah, it would. if we could actually make that foundational principle. Okay, but on the flip side, when you start writing everything that way, you can get some very, very wordy tools. So, so th like, um, think of Java, and they have a love affair with XML, and they're, we're going to separate the policy and the mechanism quite a lot, but then the policies end up being so wordy and indecipherable that you kind of feel like you're back at square one sometimes. Have you ever looked at a Maven file? Have you, have you ever had to build with a Maven file? We'll just say that. They're um, super Have I had to build? Yeah, and I have since tried to avoid it. <laughs> because yeah, they're gibberish. No. You, you, it's one of those that's so complicated, you, you almost have to get a tool to make it for you. You could say the same thing about uh, GMaker or the, the the whole lineage tool chain build tools there. I don't know how to make any of those things do them do what they're going to do by by manual means. So I pretty much have to use their auto make tools to generate the make file. I I don't mm -hmm. have the ability to make a, a valid make file that does all the things that their auto make product does. So I just have to rely upon. Their I think building though, thing. this is a little bit more foundational and. Okay. From if you take it from a security perspective, this reminds me a lot of um, WXRX. A, a memory space should not be readable or writable and executable at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's one or the other. Pick one. If it needs to change, that's fine. It can change outside of the normal operating things that are going on. Right, yeah. So that you don't overwrite something, a memory space, which is also executing at the same time because... Well, that's a very bad road to go down. Nothing is ever bad that has ever happened when you do that. Never. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So moving on, we have write simple programs, write small programs, mm -hmm. write transparent programs, and write robust programs. Now, people, people mistake robust here for expansive instead of robust as in resilient. Mm -hmm. This was actually something when I first read these back in the day. I made that mistake. I thought robust was, oh, well, it could do all the things. And then another wise person was like, you're a dum-dum. That's not <laughs> what that word means in that case. And I was like, huh? And then they explained it. No, it's resilient. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, oh, yeah, I was, I was a dum-dum. Well, but okay. that's fine. Maybe, maybe I, so. I was a dum-dum. Not for that reason. I was corrected. Now I'm not a dum-dum anymore. I definitely wouldn't agree with that, but okay. Yeah. Um. So... Make data complicated when required, not the program. That, I like that, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like that. Again, keeping it simple and understandable. Hey, did we have an episode uh, not too long ago about how things should be open and transparent? And, yeah, uh, I, I vaguely recall yeah. something about that, like 40 minutes long. I think we talked something. about that before. Yeah. 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 Maybe a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, build on the potential user's expected knowledge. I like this one a lot, and I have a real problem with programs that don't. So this comes out in, in interesting ways. Like, for instance, let's say I have a program where I have to, I, the user, must give the input of a host name to do X on. Should the host mm -hmm. name be fully qualified? Well, I don't know. Let's assume it's not, and try our hardest. 
let's assume that the user is not going to put it on there, but if they do, we'll accept that too. And th that also goes back to the robustness thing too. But it seems like too many programs are written with the expectation that only someone that's, you know, high art, high Linux man or woman going to be able to do this. And that's not reasonable at all. I should not have to have a PhD in Linux to run your program. I should not have, a, have, to, have to have a PhD in system design and another PhD in programming language design just to be able to operate your tool. I really shouldn't need that. Some tools are like that, and I tend to get irrationally angry about them when I run into them. And it's all I yeah. can do to not send a, a nasty gram to the developer. Like, why did you do it this way? Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I don't run into that as much these days. And earlier times, yeah. I saw it more often. So the next one I agree with and disagree with, and that is avoid unnecessary output. And I agree that under normal mm. operating conditions, there should be no unnecessary output. However, when run in debug mode, I want that thing to vomit every <laughs> single possible <laughs> yeah. message it can. Yep. Yeah. Varying levels of debug mode, too. I like that. That's a, that's a more modern paradigm. Like, you have varying levels of verbosity. If I just want a little bit, okay, dash V. I want more, dash VV. And if I want literally everything, kitchen sink and all the plumbing underneath, dash VVV or whatever. There's some of them go like up to eight, eight levels of yeah. verbosity on debugging. But yeah, give, give me all the data. Give me all the output. Give me everything. Everything. Yeah. And ideally, let me store that data somewhere else. I don't want it to mix in with my output stream because I need to be able to see what the heck is being done. I've got a problem mm -hmm. up at work with an automation that is turned up with such a high verbosity, it's difficult to troubleshoot at times. And that's just the way it was done. And so that's, hmm. that's happened several times. We're like, well, no, that's actually not a problem with SSH. It's just you're seeing the SSH connection data. And it looks like there was a problem, but it's not a problem. Keep going. The problem is later on. So there is a balance to find in there. Sometimes yeah. too much is too much. But on the, on the level... Mm. I don't know about that. You just need to build a better grip. Maybe if, so. If okay, as, as long as... Okay, there's another thing that some people tend to do when they're writing their programs is they don't make use of standard error. They just stick everything on standard out. There's this... We get this... Uh, the, the default in Unix programs is to have three total streams, one in and two out. The two out, one for errors and one for regular output. Use standard error in your bash scripts. Use standard error to print out error messages. It goes to the same place unless you, the user, deliberately redirect it. Use it. It's mm -hmm. super helpful. And then there's a, yeah, there's a some smart guy figured that out a long time there's ago. There's a debate over whether usage should go to standard error or not, because that actually kind of irritates me when I run a program I'm like dash dash help and it prints everything out to standard error. I'm like, I don't know this. I'm like, oh, I'll just pipe it through less and look at it. And it pipes nothing because everything went to standard error instead. Okay. Right. Why'd you do that? I told you specifically to tell me usage. That means that's the output so, of the program. Yeah, so that actually brings up the very next principle, Ooh. which is write programs which fail in a way that is easy to diagnose. Oh, I like that one a lot. I like that one a lot. Mm. I think you're going to like the next one, too. Oh. Value developer time over machine time. Oh, I love this one. Thank you, ESR. Thank you so very much. Because, to a point, there is a point at which you're, you're, you're so valuing developer time that you're willing to throw tens of thousands of dollars of resources at something, and that doesn't solve it. Mm -hmm. I, I've been in those situations, too where you're trying to do like five levels of ETL and you end up sticking the data back in the same database where it's going through these various steps. And so you end up, now I need a database that needs 700 gigabytes of, of RAM or something absurd. I, I wish I was joking. Like we had a situation where someone decided to give the entire host 
all of the RAM that was available on the host went to this one system to try and give it enough RAM so it could do its multiple layers of ETL. I was like, can we spend a couple developer hours to cut down the number of layers here? Because this is getting absurd. At some point, there is the sense of scale becomes too much. So mm-hmm. in general, I do very much agree with that. But there is a sensible limit. We'll put it that way. Find the sensible limit and don't cross it. All right? Yeah. Um, prototype software before polishing it. Please. Yes. Please. Do not spend years on every little tiny widget before you ever get around to making the thing actually work. Yes. Now, there's a corollary to this. Don't just make it work one time and release it either. That's not, that's not what he said. Ah, he's not saying I, that. I don't know. I don't know. Because if you, release, if you release it open, someone else can take it and run with the ball. Okay. All right. So. That's, that's, that, you're right. That's fair. So maybe release it early, openly, and keep working on it. Go ahead. Because yeah. someone else can help you with it if someone else wants to. But if they don't, you still have an obligation to keep going because you haven't finished. You've just proven that it works. Let's make it more robust. Some of these other things that he's mm-hmm. mentioned. But uh, yeah, I agree with that. And sometimes it doesn't yeah. work that well because, uh, you know, if you're working for a company and you don't get to release your code or it's only going to yeah. be seen by other developers at the company, maybe it's an internal tool. That's a slightly mm-hmm. different situation, I think. By and large, if you're writing open, if you're deliberately approaching in the open way, yes, go ahead, publish, and get some help. Yeah, this is kind of funny, but one of the reasons I really hate working on proprietary software is when I'm not working somewhere ever, you know, I leave to go somewhere else. And then I'm like, hey, I did this at this place. And oh, crap, I can't see how I did it in the past because mm-hmm. I don't have access to the code anymore. So I can't see that brilliant solution that I figured out once. And now I don't have access to it. And I need that brilliant solution again. Well, that's why you accidentally oops it onto a jump drive somewhere, right? Uh, no. Never no, that is, would we ever no, do that. No, 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 no. Definitely not when you have NDAs out the wazoo. You're right, you're right. And yeah. yeah. You're right. But on that, write flexible and open programs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Another one of ESR's points. So is that all, all 14 and of them? So, well, that was, no, I skipped a few of the, was was 17. That. So there was another one. 17. Let's see, use composition was in there. Uh, write abstract programs that generate code instead of writing code by hand. And make the program and protocols extensible. I think those were the three I... Okay. I yeah, those have a little more depth. Maybe we can come back and address those in another episode. Because those, several of those, they merit further discussion and exploration because there's, there's some nuance there that we can't really ignore. So that sounds mm-hmm. like another episode to me. Yeah, so. we can definitely... You can definitely try that. Now, there is another link that I found from, let me pull it up real quick, uh, University of Rhode Island, hmm. which I will throw into the show notes, where it's, it's a, I think it's actually one of the courses, um, and this is just like a resource that the professor has available. And in this, they, he has it written down as Unix philosophy rules that we can abstract from um, Unix philosophy. Mm. And some of these we've kind of touched on, but I figured there's 17 of them. We'll just go ahead and run over them. Go ahead, blitz it. I think this is similar to ESR's list, but uh, go over it. So rule one is the rule of modularity, right? Simple parts connected by a clean interface. Rule two, rule of clarity. Clarity is better than cleverness. Mm-hmm. Uh, rule three is the rule of composition. Design programs to be connected to other programs. Rule four is the rule of separation. Uh, separate policy from mechanisms, separate interfaces from engines. Five, rule of simplicity. Design for simplicity, add complexity only where you must. Rule six is the rule of parsimony. 
write big programs only when it is clear by demonstration that nothing else will do. Oh, I like that. I like the way that's characterized. Yeah. yeah. Rule of transparency, designed for visibility to make inspection and debugging easier. Rule of robustness. Robustness is the child of transparency and simplicity. Rule of representation. Fold knowledge into data so that program logic can be simple and robust. Mm -hmm. Rule of least surprise. An interface yes. design always do the least surprising thing. I love this. And I, I use that I all over the place. I absolutely love that And one. not just in user interfaces. I try to do that everywhere. Yeah. That's, that's, I, I guess I promoted that one. Right. Go ahead. Rule of silence. When a program has nothing surprising to say, it should say nothing. Rule of repair. When you must fail, fail noisily and as soon as possible. Agreed. Rule of economy. Programmer time is expensive. Conserve it in preference to machine time. Rule of generation. Avoid hand hacking. Write programs to write programs when you can. I don't know that I like I this would, one. Yeah. I, I, I would give kind of some pushback on that. Mm -hmm. I think if, if you take the time at which this was these were written when ESR wrote his stuff, mm -hmm. I think he was focusing on let's do higher level languages mm -hmm. so that we can write easier code, which is then going to, at the end of the day, get compiled down to something that the system's going to run instead of writing lower level programs all the time. Because in a way, that's kind of what a compiler is. Yes. It's a program that writes programs. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it's purest definition. But when I, when I think of a yeah. program that writes a program, I'm thinking, I don't actually like ORM libraries very much. I don't like, I, I've long had a problem with, um, you end up designing your database around what's convenient for the object and not the other way around. Like I, I, I tend to start, if, I'm, if I have to store data in a database, I'm starting with the database design first and then I interface with the language. And that's kind of the antithesis of what ORM wants you to do. But I, I feel like in ORM, you're writing a little meta language with it, with, that it's doing the talking to the database for you. And I, I guess I, I have a problem with how it chooses to build its language sometimes. I also have a problem with the, so like hibernate had a big problem for a while there you would create a class or create an object on the fly to, to talk about this thing. And then if you didn't clean it up, it would just keep creating more and more objects and you could fill up your, your, your heap space if you weren't careful. So there's, I guess I, I'm of mixed opinions. I've seen some of the, the code generation things and I, I prefer to get in the middle and be able to, I want to like tune it myself. I guess I would rather create a skeleton and I can go in and, and add my own, you know? But I, I understand that that goes hand in hand with the developer time. and. Honestly, mm -hmm. if um, if you're creating the same thing over and over again, then it makes sense to create a smaller tool to create the larger tool. You know, a lot of housing blueprints are very similar. So, do I actually need an architect to go through and, and individually appoint every single piece of a house, or can we just like, okay, this bathroom looks roughly like that bathroom with slightly different dimensions, but roughly where the pipes are in the wall, where the wires are in the wall, that's that's good. Let's just leave it there. You know, we can we can cut and paste. We don't really need to be individually assigning every single beam, every single wall. We can just kind of borrow from what's been done before. So I guess if as long as you're borrowing what you've already done, that's different than code generation. There's a lot of mystery mm -hmm. in code generation that I struggle with. So that's the one of these that I would contest. I would really, I would put the, put the brakes on and say, hey, whoa, whoa, all these others are great, but that one, maybe not so much. But that's my personal. You'll probably like the next one. Rule of diversity, distrust all claims for the one true way. Oh, I like that a lot. You're right. Because only I know the one true way. So obviously, if, you're, if you disagree with me, obviously you must be wrong, right? 
No. That's how it works. That's what that means. That means nope. I'm always right. Nope. That's, that's exactly what that's that means. That's not what that means. That's, yeah. I'm certain nope. that's what it means. Clearly, you're wrong. And, so I'm not listening to you because I know exactly what it means. this is an example of you being wrong. So you just made my case for me. Thank you. Well, okay. I'm glad I could help. And, and lastly, the rule of extensibility. Design for the future. I like this one because too. Because it will be here sooner than you think. Mm -hmm. Yep. I like this one a lot. I, I rant and rail about code that doesn't. Yeah, do not code yourself into a corner. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. Assumptions often cause that, whether you, whether you mean to or not, oh, I assume it will only ever be used for this. And that's one thing that the Unix philosophy is very good at. I may not know what I need this tool for in the future. It may end up doing something radically different than what I'm anticipating it using now. Do you mm -hmm. think that the original creators of Awk expected people to use it to just cut out a column and just print the one column? Probably not. They probably expected people to write whole languages in Awk and do all these fancy things. But a lot of the time, gosh, it was all over in, in Slackware's um, startup scripts. They would use Awk to just isolate something and make sure it had the right spacing around it. And it was just like, we're kind of invoke this program just to do this one thing. I'm pretty sure the people that created Awk, if they saw that, they would have been very upset. But you don't know how it's going to be used in the future. So is it really terrible that they used Awk for that? Maybe. It's kind of heavy to do that. But um, it does that job better than any other tool. So maybe that's the right way to do it. Who knows? And there's no way to know ahead of time how someone's going to use your tool. So leave in the ability to expand it. Leave in the ability to... Yeah. That's part of, that's also kind of open source too. Just leave in the ability for someone else to make a contribution. If your mm -hmm. code is closed, then no one else can contribute, except if you let them. But who knows what someone else is going to come up with. There is also time though, this come, sometimes can go against the developer time is expensive. Because if you spend a lot of time to try and make your tool extensible, sometimes you can make it overly so. Like how many years did it take for the Eclipse IDE to actually become a pretty good IDE because they spent so much time trying to make a tool that could be used to make any IDE out there that took several years before it actually landed on this is a good IDE for Java or this is a good IDE for something else. That was 20 years ago or more, but they spent too much time, in my opinion, on the extensibility. But after they paid all the costs of the extensibility, they had a really powerful tool. I think also extensibility here can be taken in, in two ways. One is like what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Two is that if you write a program that operates in, in a certain way, it can be expanded, but people can build on top of that outside of your program, okay. which comes to the programs that work together. So, you know, if you have your output of your program, do not have it necessarily so specifically outputted that then no one else can utilize the output of your program. Agreed. Write it in a way that others can take advantage of the output of your program. I agree. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, REST APIs have become so popular. Because you right there built in. I have a multiple ways I can communicate with the REST API. I can give it a you know query string. I can give it JSON. I can give it YAML. I can give it some other customized format. And then I can be specified, okay, I want you to output to me in YAML. Please give me my response back in YAML, or please give me my response back in just straight text or whatever. And it's it's right there built into the, into the protocol, but how we handle protocol requests, it's built in. And it's that, among other things, it's, it's a, we're all speaking a similar language when we write to the you know, REST API. So one, one API can call another and have a reasonable expectation of how it's going to live and how it's going to perform. That's very useful. And then you can take those and chain them together. Yeah. Hey, back on that uh, text processing, output of one is the input of another. Mm -hmm. uh, that's come full circle. I guess it has. Because at the end of the day, hypertext is just text yeah. that's gone hyper.
Sorry. Really, Jeff? Really? Uh, I think wow. that's a great place to uh, I end. Am, I am I am not cutting that out. That is staying in. Go ahead. Leave it in. That's great. But yeah, um, that that's a that's a fantastic place to to wrap this episode up. So I don't I don't really know if there's anything else I should say other than nope. uh, give us feedback. Specifically, give us feedback about that comment that Jeff just made. I'm looking forward to it. I'll hear from all of you. Yeah. So links in the show notes, how to reach us is in there as well. Um, we'd love to hear from you guys so we can have some more feedback to cover on the show. So thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, guys.